Private Hole is the name of the podcast with Jim Sion and Harry Bartosiak. Harry Bartosiak, the number one attorney in Chicago. How are you, friend? Hello there. <laughs> no, I thought. Now wait, that sounds like Marty Allen. I'm looking for Harry Bartosiak. Is he the other? Is he there too? Yes, it's me. I'm just trying to carry on the legacy oh. of one of America's most underappreciated comedians. Hello there. Yes. That was his underappreciated. Yeah, for 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 good reason. <laughs> what was the commercial he did? No, I'm thinking of Avery Schreiber who did Doritos. Doritos. Did, did, yeah. Was he in the Doritos commercials too? No, no. That's a great. Um, that's a great suggestion. What would have been a great commercial spot for Marty Allen? I could have seen him as the tidy ball man. You look down and you see in the in the blue water. Hello there. <laughs> that would have been good. You're right. We have a very unusual uh, second part to an earlier episode that we're going to get to in a second. But first of all, as you know, uh, this week we had another hurricane in New Orleans. So I did a little binge watching and I watched... I tried to go from first season to the end. I stopped about halfway. I watched the old Dick Van Dyke show, which you and I have talked about many times. The real Dick Van Dyke show, not the one when he lives in Arizona, right? Yes, the classic Dick Van Dyke show. But you right. know what? I'm, I'm going to say something sacrilegious here. There are, there are some episodes, especially early in the run, seasons one and two, that really aren't that funny. Hmm. No kidding. Now, see, that never crossed my mind. I ne- and I'm pretty critical, as you know. I've criticized everybody from uh, Lucille Ball to uh, Don Knotts on Three's Company. And uh, right. so I, I would be right there with you. So lay it on me. What, what's your analysis? What do you think is not funny? Well, you know, there are a bunch of episodes where there's, there's jealousy between Rob and Laura, like an old boyfriend comes to town or a guest host comes oh, yeah. on the Alan Brady show and starts flirting with, uh, with Laura. I hate that. And I, yeah. yeah, me neither. You and I are in the same. It's, it's that old, again, go ba- going back to I Love Lucy, where Lucy's dressed up in a, in, a, in a Carmen Miranda outfit, and she's trying to get in the act, and Ricky doesn't want her in the act. And, I mean, it just it, there were about three or four episodes that I really just said aren't that funny. And I hate, and again, that's sacrilegious because you and I have great respect for the, for Carl Reiner, who just passed away, and of course mm-hmm. Dick Van Dyke, who's still with us. But, but I will say this, and there's one episode that redeemed everything. It's the last episode of season two. Do you remember the episode with Uncle Spunky and the talking bowling pin? I don't. I bet I, I bet I saw it. Can you refresh my recollection, please? And I hadn't seen it for about 35 years, but it's a great showbiz type plot. Rob Mm -hmm. is looking for an idea for the Alan Brady show. His son, Richie, comes up and says, hey, Dad, why don't you do a talking bowling pin sketch? Or you're a bowling pin, and you're trying to dodge the ball, and then you're getting picked up by the automatic pin machine. And he says, you know what? That that could actually work, because Alan likes to do physical humor. So he comes up with the idea. He, play, he, he performs it for Buddy and Sally. They're like, this is great. Mel loves it. Everything's great. And then the next day, he finds out that Richie... Oh, yeah. Yeah, saw the sketch on the Uncle Spunky show on a Saturday morning cartoon show. Ah, yes. <laughs> so I remember but, now, yeah. Yes, and the beauty of it is they go 24 minutes or however many minutes into the show, they're like, what are we going to do? Oh, my God, this is such a huge problem. So it's like the day of the show. So finally, Rob goes to Alan and says, Alan, he says, I'll hand in my resignation if you want. This is the biggest problem we've ever had since I've been on the show, and i got to apologize a million times. The bit that we have tonight for your opening uh, monologue, it was unintended, but it was actually performed uh, first on the Uncle Spunky show like three weeks ago. And so Alan says, that's the problem? Hold on a second. Picks up the phone. Uh, get me Uncle Spunky. 
Yeah, Uncle Spunky, hi, this is Alan Brady. Hey, no, I'm, hey, I'm a big fan of yours, old buddy. So good to talk with you. <laughs> hey, listen, you know, I heard something through the grapevine that you're doing the bowling pin sketch with the talking bowling pin. Now, of course, you realize I did that originally in vaudeville back in the 30s. And, you know, my dumb lawyers, they keep talking about wanting to sue this person. And I said, you can't sue an Uncle Spunky. You cannot sue that man. He is a national treasure. <laughs> I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Tonight, I'm going to perform the bowling pin sketch on my show for one last time. And then, you know what? As a gift from me to you, out of a center, you can have the bowling pin sketch forever. I'll give it to you. <laughs> like, okay, That's great. Good stuff. I know. That's so perfect. Such a great showbiz type story. Because you know something like that has happened at least a dozen times over the years. Oh, for God's sakes. They, must have, they don't just think that up out of midair. All right. So this is part two of our variety show extravaganza. We were going to do a, a full show and just go back and forth with variety shows. But the fact is, you did one. I did one. We had so much material that we had to end the episode early. Otherwise, it would have been a three-hour episode. So right now, this we're is like go... a two-parter, like a Brady Bunch uh, taboo Hawaii episode. No, once you touch, taboo stay. You mean there's no way to get rid of the bad luck? Only one way, if you have the courage to take it back. Back? Back where? To burial ground of ancient kings. Burial ground. Tabu will be gone once you put it back. Oh, wow. Oh, that's yeah. beyond extravaganza. That's too much. Okay. So for part two of our extravaganza, I want you to kick it off in Chicago. Uh, what variety show, and I'm hoping it's a mediocre one, what variety show have you selected for this podcast? Hmm. I didn't know we were supposed to do variety shows. I'm just kidding. I got it. Yeah, we're good. <laughs> okay. um, Jim, those yep. who do not learn from the Mistakes of the past are destined to repeat them. Okay. Wow, that's good. Yeah. I thought Calvin, I thought Calvin Coolidge said that originally, but I'm writing it down and I'm attributing it to you. So, but we have a presidential election coming up right around the corner. God help us all. We'll see. Hope we get through it. But I want to visit a, a variety show that was super politically charged and super successful, and featured a multi-term. Uh, uh, sort of a perennial political candidate. And do you, do you want to take a guess at the show that I'm going to visit here on our second well, part of our extravaganza? I actually knew it about three seconds in, and I love them. Uh, they're both just great performers. Tom and Dick Smothers, the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. From 1967 to 1969, they had the, a variety show, comedy. It's a comedy hour, but they had musical acts, too. So in my book, it's a variety show. Right. Um, on CBS, and it was at a time when television and in society, for that matter, was in, getting into great turmoil with what was happening in the late 60s. You talk about Vietnam, Martin Luther King, sure, Kennedy the, the assassination. Ri the riots the riot. at the Democratic, yeah, the, in 68 in Chicago, right. I and mean, that was right when their show just about started. That was, yeah, you're right. It was extremely politically charged. They're right in the middle of all of it, and they're yep. doing a comedy show, and they were far to the left, and they laid it on thick. I mean, they would do, I'm not going to get into all the specific skits that they did. I didn't even see a lot of them. I'm more interested in the history of the show in and of itself as a fascinating story. 
but they they would have comedians on, and they had musical acts that were very left and liberal, like uh, Pete Seeger, you know, singing sure. folk songs. And we'll get into a little bit more about the musical acts. But they went up against Bonanza, which apparently, uh, I guess it's oversimplifying, but it's kind of like, hey, all the conservative John Wayne type, you know, people, that was more of a show for them. Hugely successful Bonanza, as we know, we love that show. But the Smothers Brothers was massively successful too. It did real well, and they were they did political satire and musical acts intended for a younger audience, more in tune with the times, as opposed to, you know, the symb symbolism of the Bonanza still watching the old westerns, Gunsmoke, and all that. But you, now remember, Bonanza's on its last legs at that point, if I'm not mistaken. They were starting to wane a little bit because Pernell Roberts had left. Um, and it wasn't quite as good as it was, say, earlier in the 60s. But keep going. You're exactly right. Right. Well, did Pernell Roberts have his real hair still at the time? Did he left Bonanza? Or was that nope. always fake hair? No, you're, you remember the only one on the show that didn't wear a hairpiece was Michael Landon. Lauren Green, Pernell Roberts, and even Dan Blocker wore hair pieces on that show. So anyway, um, but that was the idea with the Smothers Brothers. Let's give these guys a shot bring in a younger audience. And boy, were they successful, in large part because Tom and Dick were real, even though they're doing like, uh, you know, political satire, some of, a lot of it was controversial, they seemed like nice guys, and they were funny, and they were talented, you know, um, Tommy could, or was it Dick or Tom that played the guitar? But anyway, they could do a little musical. Yeah, I always, comedy. I always, had, Tom, Tommy was the blonde who played he the guitar. He played the guitar, yeah, yeah. Dick had the mustache, of course they both had mustaches for a while, but yeah. Dick had the mustache first and he played some upright bass, although he really wasn't that good of an upright bass player, but th no, that's, that's right. different. But they were supported, Jim, by a huge stable of writers and uh, they weren't all like young writers. They had, a couple of the writers were Hal Goodman and uh, Al Gordon from the Jack Benny program. Uh, Steve Martin was one of the writers, pretty damn successful. Tying into our earlier Dick Van Dyke discussion, Rob Reiner did, was involved yep, with the Smothers. That's Brothers. right. Um, a guy named Lorenzo Music was a writer. Do you know who that is? Um, this Carlton, your doorman. <laughs> 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 right. Yeah. And he later played the voice of Garfield the Cat. And, uh, and he did lots of Hell, other things, too. That probably made him more money than everything else combined, for <laughs> yeah. God's sake. Right. <laughs> oh. uh, another gentleman by the name of Don Novello. Can you venture a guess as to his most famous uh, character? Right now I'm holding a fake cigarette in my right hand, and I've got a white collar on because I'm Father Guido Sarducci. Yes, sir, Father Guido Sarducci. Some people say that the people on the moon, uh, it's just like here, except they eat corn on the cob vertically. And for that reason, I wouldn't want to go there. But no. <laughs> no was that actual, wait, was that an actual Father Guido Sarducci joke? Because I don't yes, think you could have. Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> you know, for years, I thought that he was also the guy that did, was in the super fans on Saturday Night Live. This is Bill Swirsky. Stop, Bears! But that turns no. out that's Robert Smigel, right? I don't know why he always yeah. got those guys. You're exactly right. Robert yeah. Smigel, who was right for SNL, and of course right. the other super fans were over the years uh, uh, Chris Farley, John Goodman, Mike Myers. I'm having a uh, heart attack! And, uh, and who's the actor? The, the real good actor who was in Godfather Joe 3. Montaigne. Joe Mantegna. Joe Mantegna, yeah. Those <laughs> are the main guys, I think. Yeah. Um, okay, a couple more. Um, another yeah. guy uh, named Dave Einstein. Who, who, was, had a, who was better known as Super Dave Osborne. Super Dave Osborne. 
And just for shits and giggles, I guess he brought along his brother as a writer, too, who was uh, technically named Albert Einstein, who we know better as Albert Brooks. The great right, Albert Brooks. Very funny. Broadcast News. And what was that? Lost in America? Was that the movie he was in when he was driving around in the camper? And, yeah, uh, that's with, with what's her name with the with the the good looking gal, the skinny one from Airplane, uh, Julie Haggerty. Oh, uh, yeah, Julie Haggerty. Yeah. yeah. And remember when he loses the money at the casino and he tries to talk to the casino owner to get the money back? Well, you give us our money back. Uh, I, I, I don't even know now because I'm just coming off the top of my head. But a visual where if we had a billboard and the desert Inn handed us our nest egg back. This gives the desert Inn really Vegas is not associated with feeling. First of all, those people on those signs, they won. You lost. But that's it. That's, that's, that's the campaign. For years, I always thought that was Sheldon Leonard who played the casino owner, but it's not. Who is it? Oh, I don't know. I can't recall. Who is okay, it? Okay, I, I think it's, I'm 99% sure it's Gary Marshall who played that same right. kind of, you know, yeah. tough guy. But, yeah, no, that's great. That's, that's one of the great <laughs> a casino. We'll do billboards. The casino with the heart. <laughs> if you lose too much, they'll give it back. <laughs> yeah. Well, oh. you could see that these guys were pretty well set up. They had, that was a pretty good, young, cutting-edge staff that they had there. Oh, yeah. And they had a guy named Pat Paulson. And the funny thing about Pat Paulson was – that he was this kind of milk toast, gray-haired guy. You talk about deadpan. I mean, that's yeah. all he did. He did. He wasn't really a comedian in the classic sense. He was a sort of a straight man, straight man. But they put him up to running for president, actually running for president in 1968. Sure. Yeah. And so just every four years after that, until I don't even remember when, I, I think he died like in 2002 or something, he ran for president. And actually came in second in several primaries. Uh, I, I, can't, I don't have all the details on that, but it was there were primaries like when he ran when Bush was president. Then he came in second, running against Bush, like when nobody right. else was contesting it, or versus Clinton, for example. So anyway, so it wasn't that. But he 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 ran his campaigns using lies, double talk, and tongue-in-cheek attacks on all the major candidates. Um, and he had cheesy sayings like. Uh, uh, we've upped our standards, now up yours. Or, <laughs> yeah. 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 I forgot uh, that. There's a 70s saying for you, up yours, right? When's the last time yeah. you said that? Uh, united we sit. And then whenever he was asked a complicated question, he had this kind of standard line. It'd say something like, to get to the meat of the matter, I will come right to the point and take note of the fact that at the heart of the issue and the final analysis escapes me completely. Can, can I just interject here real quick? Please, please do. Be, because, because Smothers Brothers, as I think most people know, started as a folk singing act out on the West Coast when folk music was big, when uh, you had the, the groups like, um, oh, uh, the, the Kingston Trio. Um, yeah, that's the, the one that comes to mind. But anyway, they were a singing act. Then they started to do comedy, and they started to do national shows. I think they did The Tonight Show back when it was in New York with Johnny Carson, maybe Steve Allen. And they were considered very much a mainstream act. You know, it was Tom and Dick kind of ribbing each other. They weren't political until they got on TV. Then they started mm. to, to grow. They were, very, they were very representative of the country, as I think you mentioned. Because when they started the show, it was a comedy act. I mean, that's what they were doing. But then they yeah. said, you know, hey, the world's changing. And they actually, you know, were changing with it. And they were, they were great 
frontmen for the movement of the 60s and early 70s because that's who they were. They were from the West Coast. They were becoming more politically involved. They were becoming more politically aware. So it's not like they said, hey, we want to stick it to the establishment. No, this was all coming from the heart is they were growing as people and performers. And, you know, they were also good guys to do this because they did have a very agreeable personalities. They weren't overly yes. in your face. They were. They still could appeal to mainstream conservative America. There was. They had a certain sort of like wholesome aw shirts sure. quality to well, them. And at they the had same been on time. all these shows. They had been on all these shows, like the Tonight Show with Johnny. And you know, so if you oh Tom and Dick, oh we like Tom and Dick. Oh they sing their songs and they they change the lyrics and 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 Tom's kind of slow, but oh and Dick's kind of the wise one, you know. Uh, so when CBS gave them the show, they weren't expecting this at all. Yeah. Well, they got it, and they got it in spades, and it became yeah. a continuing problem until. Um, I guess there was a sketch with David Steinberg that didn't go over well where um, it, it had to do something with jokes about Jesus or some over-the-top religious, the sacrilegious type stuff is what really yeah, he's, the exact he used to Yeah, he used to stand at a pulpit and do political sermons like he was a preacher or right. a reverend. Yeah, and, uh, and, and personally, I've seen them. I don't think they're that... Obviously, compared you know, compared with what people say today, uh, I don't think it was that charged. And I actually don't find it that funny. But obviously, well, CBS and of course they had standards and practices. That was the yeah the yeah, and and they didn't like they didn't like anything that was no. And know. that's why you're right. They didn't like it. And that's why I want to focus on that, not on the particular content of the sketches, because a lot of them they don't hold up right now. Right. You know, somebody. Uh, but anyway, uh, William Paley finally had enough, and even though in the middle of high ratings, canceled them in 1969. Off the air. Boom. Gone. Only good news to come out of that, I think, or a piece of good news to come out of that, it was the show was replaced in the lineup by Hee Haw. Yes. And that's where that gave us a, you know, so we went from the Smothers Brothers to Junior Samples in the snap of a finger. Uh, <laughs> but, in the, but in the meantime, um, you can't just do that. You can't just cancel them in the middle of their contract, I guess, because according to the terms of the contract, uh, you can't just do that. And the Smother Brother, Smothers Brothers sued, and like in 1973, like four years later, they won a bunch of money. Something like four hundred grand, which was big money back then. Um, and then there's a movie that came out in 2002 called Smothered, yes. which I've never seen. Oh. but I'd like to see oh, it. God. Oh God! It's all about the censorship and cancellation. Oh Have you God! Seen it? Yeah, what no, I've report? watched it three or four times. It's on YouTube. Uh, Google it. It's <laughs> it's so good um, because it got me down the rabbit hole, and I started to watch interviews with Tom and Dick Smothers well after the fact. You know, from from like five and eight years ago. Yes, when you watch that, and you 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 represented it perfectly, um, because they did. They that technically they didn't get canceled; they got fired, which I don't really know the difference. I think they kept the show, but they fired them or something. But you're right. Yeah, it, I don't it, know. It, it, yeah. they, it went through the courts, and it was like, no, you didn't cancel us; you fired us, and and it went to the all the legal bullshit. But they ended up winning, which was almost unheard of back then for for a couple of guys to go up against mm -hmm. the network and beat them. Uh, and they did. So they obviously had a case because they won, for God's sake. They did. And got more power to them. I've read this in books, and I think I saw it. It might even be in Smothered. But Tom and Dick were both, you know, liberals. But Tom was very, very liberal. Where Dick was liberal, but at the same time, he, he kept more of a level head. So as the show went on, 
Tom is going further and further. He's wanting to push the envelope and let's do this and let's really let's go after this and go after that. Let's have um I think they had Harry Belafonte uh, sing a song, and behind him they had footage of the 1968 riots in Chicago. And boy, and they're like, oh, you can't do that. And Tom's like, we're going to do it. And Dick the whole time's like, you know, this is supposed to be entertainment, supposed to be a comedy show. So, and Tom <laughs> later in life realized, he said, you know, I kind of was off my rocker that last year. He said, I forgot that we're supposed to be comedians really? first. Yeah. And he realizes that was a mistake. Um, and they actually, you know, and, and they've been partners forever, and there have been internal spats, but they've always performed together, and they're still, you know, obviously very close. But uh, that was the one time uh-huh. where, uh, where Tommy, and he admits it. He says, you know, he says, I, I lost my focus. Now, at the end of the run of the show, they were becoming so political that the ratings actually were starting to slip significantly. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Now, the, the, if you look at the whole body of work, like for the season, they might have been number 15 or something. They were in the top 20. But like three, four episodes in a row, going down, going down, going down. I want to say one, one week they were down at like 38 yeah. or 39. So you could see that maybe the general public was starting to wane on all of the talk about censorship and politics. And I think that was CBS's case when they went to court. They said, hey, listen, you know, the ratings were going down. But like we said, Tom and Dick had enough material, had good lawyers, whatever, and they actually won, which is considered to this day kind of a landmark case in show business. Have you ever seen Tommy Smothers' dead-on impersonation of Johnny Carson? Yes, uh, I have. Years ago, though, I, I would love to see it. I gotta, I'm going to check that oh, out. That's a great Yeah, tip. you Google it. It's on YouTube. Demon and honor, because of all these years you've done it with Johnny, it would make him feel... i got to tell you what to do, though. Just... Uh, Hmm. Okay. Is that all right? Yeah. You ready? All right. So he's here. And now here's Tommy. And it's it's one of the funniest things I've ever heard. And Tommy Smothers is really a funny, funny guy. When he's in interviews, uh, he's just naturally very quick and uh, just a funny guy. Funny guy. And did Johnny like the impersonation, or did it take No, they were buddies. I think Tom Smothers was one of the few guys that came to Johnny Carson's card game because it would be like Steve Martin, Johnny Carson, uh, I think Tom Smothers, uh, and I forget the other guys. People can can email us, or I'll put it in the corrections. But, yeah, they were good buddies. They they really were good pals. Well, it's so fitting that you would pick an important show, and it really was a very important show, because to go ahead and counterbalance this podcast – I have picked an extremely unimportant show in the variety show uh, genre as we go back to 1977 and 1978. It began as... You're not doing Pink Lady and Jeff again, are you? <laughs> no, but you know what? This, this would be... If, if we were going to do a two-parter of mediocre variety shows, I would kick it off with Pink Lady and Jeff, and then I would follow it up <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> with the show. And let's see. It was on CBS also. Uh, 1977, 1978, <laughs> and I still can't believe this show got on the air. Shields and Yarnell. Oh God, I, I knew you were going to do this. Uh, <laughs> Eventually, I guess I was secret, secretly hoping you weren't. Uh, but uh, we let's relish in it. Shields and well, Yarnell. Well, you know what? And let's do this. Weren't they? I want to do this right off the bat because you and I know Shields and Yarnell, but I think there might be some of the people that don't remember Shields and Yarnell, 
So right now, what I'd like to do... No, how could that be? <laughs> well, they might be young. They might have been on vacation in 1977. Who knows? But They might have blacked them out purposely. I would like to right now throw it to a clip from the TV show, an actual clip of one of their performances. Uh, this is Shields and Yarnell on their variety show. Let's go to one of their best bits. <laughs> That's what they were all about, right? I mean, w wouldn't you say that's one of their best bits? The original show about nothing. S Seinfeld ripped off from them, right? <laughs> You know, I swear to God, when you go back, and first of all, who in the world would give two mimes a show on television? I mean... I can't think of anybody except maybe Chuck Barris. But um, you know what? That would make even sense. This was too lame. Well, here's him. the thing. Shields and Yarnell, they were two mimes, obviously. Uh, they met in the early 70s. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> they were both. She was a dancer. She had done Broadway. He was always a mime. He was a protege of Marcel Marceau, um, who brought him to France. Mm -hmm. But then he wanted to do his own thing. So anyway, they hooked up. They got married. They did like 400 uh, TV appearances together. But the fact is, they weren't really, or at least he wasn't, a classic mime where you come out in the white face and you do the thing where, oh, I'm caught in the box and, you know, I'm going to sit on a chair and I'm going to do that. No, yeah. he actually was kind of like a new age mime. He would do this bit and he did it, I think, on the Merv Griffin show where he played. And I'm trying to see if I've got it right here. It was called um, The Biker where they would play music and he would like run and dance around like this crazy biker and then he'd get on a motorcycle and he'd pretend he'd be driving and then like stuff would be hitting him in the face and then he'd like be uh, making, putting a make on a girl, you know, and combing his hair kind of like Fonzie and then he'd, he'd, he'd hit on the girl and blah, blah, blah. So, it, and, they'd, and underneath this, they'd be playing like, you know, rock and roll music. So to call him a mime, I think, is probably uh, not quite the best. He was kind of a, a new wave mime from the 1970s but so anyway he teams up with it was i should get their first names robert shields and what was her name laureen yarnell and she passed away a long time ago so she did oh yeah she passed away in the 90s something real bad some oh. sort of cancer yeah and they were both young oh, and good looking sorry. so anyway they had done all these tv shows someone at cbs says hey let's give him a summer replacement series because as you remember even in the 70s a show would be on for 20-some episodes, and rather than rerun it all the way through the summer, they'd actually hire whomever to do six or eight episodes just to get that time slot through the summer. Then you'd go back to the hit show when the fall came. Is that a good way to describe it? Yes, perfect. That's exactly how it worked. Used to, anyway. Yeah, and it came from radio, because Jack Benny would do 39 episodes, and then he'd, sometimes he'd hire his band leader, Phil Harris, to do the summer replacement. They'd build a show around Phil, then they'd go back to the bare necessities, the simple bare, bare necessities. necessities. Darn right. The original Jungle Forget Book. about your carries and your, your strife. strife. Right. And, and who was is, who is Phil Harris's co-star in the original Jungle, Bro uh, Jungle Book? Great New Orleans musician. Um, I'm friends with his daughter. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't know. Well, yeah. Think about every song in the Goodfellas movie or every song in Casino. Who performs that? 
Frank Sinatra. Louis Prima. Louis Prima. Yes. That's right. Sorry. About no, that. that's all right. So anyway. Yeah, he played the uh, he played the tiger, the puma, or the I think. I, I forget. No, because right? uh, no, no, no. Louis Prima was the wasn't Louis Prima the Louis Prima was the 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 bear. No, who was the bear? Phil Phil Harris was the bear. Phil Harris was the bear. So what did Louis Prima play? He played the gorilla. Okay. Did he? Yeah, yeah, because because he did that "I Want to Be Like You" song where they make the monkey noise. So yeah, he played played a monkey or a gorilla or something like that. If I'm wrong, I'll put it in the corrections. Uh, Shields and Yarnell was on a summer yeah. replacement. Big hit. Why? Mm-hmm. No idea. So and now no idea. now here's the part. And I just want to make sure that I get uh, to all the little nuts and bolts stuff. Someone, someone at the network said, hey, this was a hit. Let's keep it going. And they're like, well, you know, we got our fall schedule, blah, blah, blah. They said, well, no, 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 let's, let's put it on in the spring. Now, this story may be apocryphal, but I read it somewhere or heard it somewhere. But supposedly, somebody smart, or maybe it was a group of people that were very smart, realized that, you know, a show about a couple of mimes, it ain't going to go, you know, it, it's very limited. But someone else... Limited is, shelf life. Yes. One trick pony, as we say. Very right? good. Yes, one trick pony. But someone pushed, someone pushed. They said, no, we got to put it on in the spring. So somebody else said, all right, we'll put it on in the spring. Uh, what's the number one show in the country right now? Oh, it's Laverne and Shirley. All right, let's put it on opposite that. So then after like four episodes, bottom of the barrel, lowest ratings on TV, finally got canceled. That was it. So that Shields and Yarnell in a nutshell. I remember when this show was on vividly. This is right at the heart of my uh, TV birth, I would say. Okay. You know, I watched TV in the early 70s, but I really started to zone in, zero in, I should say, on TV and I let it sink in, you know, mid-70s, 76, 77, 78, 79. I mean, that yeah. primo. So I remember this. I remember every show that was on. But I don't remember the content. You probably redo, or you reviewed it, or read a book about it. No. What was it any good? I'm so or glad they, you or asked. Were they absolutely horrible, or hideous? No. This is the thing. Their main thing was, and and this is going to be in a, in a movie, that, a documentary that's actually coming out. Uh, it's called My Life Is a Robot. <laughs> yeah. There's going to be a documentary about Robert Shields. My Life Is a Robot. Supposed to come out sometime this year. But really, Robert Shields was the first guy to do the robot. You know, where you move the arm and you kind of click yeah. it into place? That was his real shtick. And that was the main shtick on the show. As a matter of fact, they used to have like an eight-minute segment. Like, remember when Jackie Gleason had the Jackie Gleason show way back in the early 50s and the Honeymooners was just like an eight-minute sketch? Uh-huh. Well, they used to do this sketch. It was called The Clankers. And it was two people living in the suburbs or living in an apartment that were robots, and, every, and they would have other people come and go, and they would do all the dialogue. The clinkers would never say anything, but it was always the same bit where someone comes in, and the clinkers go, and they move slow, bump, and then they go to the bar, and they make him a drink, and then they bring the drink over, and of course, because they're robots, they can't make fluid motions, so rather than you know hand him the drink, their hand turns the wrong way, and the drink spills on the guy's pants. <laughs> okay. I mean, and I'm not I'm not exaggerating. I think I saw them and there's another one where they're eating breakfast where they pour the cereal, but rather than pour a little bit of cereal, she just turns it, all the cereal comes out in the bowl, and then she picks her arm up and the cereal box flo- throw uh you know flo- uh, flies out of her hand. 
and then they sit down to eat and they're doing the robot thing and they grab the fork and then they put it into the the the, the eggs or whatever and, and then the eggs go flying and then she uh, whatever her character was on the clinkers uh, uh, Lorene goes to eat her cereal so then she like wants to put her head down so she can get it closer to the cereal but of course what happens her head goes right into the cereal and it stays there yeah. and I mean, I swear to God, Harry, oh that's that is the punch. It's like they're normal for about two minutes, and it's like, oh, look at that, they're being robots. Oh, that's cute, you know. And then, inevitably, something like that happens, and then they they stand up too quick, and their arms under the table, and they flip the table over. I mean, that's that's the punchline to every one of these little sketches they called the clinkers, and that was like the big deal of the show. I mean, that was like the big comedy segment. So far, not funny at all, I would say, in it, at least the, for, the summary. I mean, it yeah. sounds horrible. No, for two minutes, it's kind of in... No, I got to take that back. For about one minute, it's interesting because they're moving like robots, and you're like, oh, that's very... They're very talented. You know, that looks cool. Yeah. Um, they were on the vanguard of that. Yeah, robot yeah, no. That, and, and today, um, Robert Shields will go out into parks in San Francisco, and he'll go to Mimes, and they're like, oh, man... No, look, I can do the robot even better than you. And there are guys that actually do it better than he did it. And they're like, you're my idol. And he's like taking pictures and there are crowds forming. Because I guess in the in that community, the mime community, he's like Elvis Presley. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, so you got to give him credit for that. I now, they had one guest star of note on their variety show. And I think Jeff Altman. no. <laughs> If you were gonna have, if you were gonna have two mimes, okay, and you think about who would be a good guest star, I mean, personally, I would lean toward maybe like a Jerry Lewis, a physical comedian, right? Yeah, somebody that was loud, kind of the opposite of the mimes, well, maybe. They went physical or loud. Shields and Yarnell, their one big guest star was none other than the great William Conrad. <laughs> <laughs> Cannon. Oh. He was the only guy that would do it, right? Well, he was forced by the network to do it. I have no idea. I can't find any footage of William Conrad on Shields and Yarnell. Uh, but I will say this. Oh, actually, I know why he did it. I read about this in a book. Uh, he promised uh, they he, he wanted to be on the show so badly, he promised them a ride in his airplane. And to get to the airplane, of course, they were in that, what was it, the Lincoln Continental? or the What did he drive? Yes. Uh, I think it was a Mercury Marquis. Mercury Marquis, which was even larger Standard than the Lincoln issue. Continental. So, yes, that would be right. A friend of mine had a Mercury Marquis, and we used to go to the drive-in theater. We could fit four people in his trunk comfortably. Comfortably. We'd be all back there, and you'd think you're four people in a trunk for like, you know, a mile and a half when we'd come to the No, we'd all be like, blah, blah, blah. You wouldn't even, you wouldn't even touch the other guy. You'd be like, hey. <laughs> wow. All right, so, to, oh again, God. getting back to going down the TV rabbit hole, and this is just a good way to wrap it up. I was Googling Shields and Yarnell. I was actually on YouTube. And I watched a sketch, watched a sketch, watched a sketch, and then I get done, and I don't hit stop. I'm making notes. And then what comes up right after Shields and Yarnell, but the Paul Lind Halloween special. Oh, I didn't even know that it existed. Oh, God. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Paul Lind. Well, somebody had to be. <laughs> well, here I am again. 
ABC's answer to trick or treat. <laughs> it's been a year since my uh, last special. Was it something I said? <laughs> as you know, there's a, as you know, there's a real scary holiday coming up, <laughs> Election Day. <laughs> All right, let me read you the guest stars for the Paul Lind Halloween special. Uh, Margaret Hamilton, which is a good guest star. Uh, Do you good, remember her? Wicked Witch. Wicked Witch. Wicked Witch from Wizard of Oz. West. And she still looked yeah. great. She still sounded just like the Wicked Witch. So that was good because it's a Halloween special. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> you know, I don't know where to start because each one just makes me laugh. Uh, the next guest star that I'll mention, well, they had Donnie and Marie Osmond on. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Billy Barty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He was big in the business. Yeah, he was. He was very big. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah. Roz Kelly. Roz Kelly, of course, played Pinky Tuscadero. And that's all. On... Yep. That's all she did on the show. She was Pinky yeah. Tusk. I don't even know if they used her real name. Uh, yeah. Uh, here we go. Betty White and Florence Henderson, of course. All right. Okay. And then the special musical act, and I think you remember this, was Kiss. Oh, I do remember that. Yeah. Vaguely, I think. Yeah. And it's worth uh -huh. a Google because uh, Kiss is there, and they're obviously, they play Detroit Rock City, which is a tune that I think most people remember. But they literally do the absolute worst lip-syncing job I've ever seen in my life. Uh, yeah. Maybe on purpose, right? It could they, have been. They were just kind of guys maybe that just trying to they F with they the camera. They come out with the guitars. The guitars aren't even plugged in. You look at the microphones, and they've got a cord plugged into the back of the microphone. But you look at the floor, there are no cords coming from the microphone. It was obviously, you know, they're, all they're doing is just dancing around to their song. Uh, but it's still, it's Kiss, and it's Detroit Rock City, and a lot of things blew up during the song. So, you know, it was interesting in that respect. Yeah, that's that's a good musical guest for any show. I would, I'd watch that every time, now, for sure. Now, to take it further down the rabbit hole, <laughs> after that Paul Lynn Halloween special got done playing, all of a sudden, here comes the open for a Paul Lynn show called The New Temperatures Rising. Do you remember that one at all? Negatory. Okay. Hmm. And again, is this uh, on opposite the McLean Stevenson show? Well, uh, you know, if that was the case in the beginning, th if if that was the case, then whatever show was on the third network would have got the first one hundred rating in the history of television. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's as bad. He plays the administrator or a doctor in a hospital. Um, it was such a bad show. They did it one season, and it was a horrible disaster. And they said, well, you know what? We don't have anything. Let's bring it back the next season, and we'll call it the new Temperatures Rising, and we'll just fire everybody and start with a new cast. That's what they did. Remember when we did Operation Petticoat? They did that. They cleaned out absolutely everybody except for one guy from one season one to season two. Is that what they did on the Paul Lynn show, except for Paul Lynn? Yeah, I think they brought Paul Lynn, for, Paul Lynn in for season two, but Cleavon Little was the main character. It was like his first big role. Then after that, he did Blazing Saddles, and then he did other things, and then he died way too young. And I'll put that in the corrections oh, yeah. when did Cleavon Little die. But, uh, but yeah, and, and, and the thing about the show is it's, it's one of those very unfunny sitcoms, but it was so bad because they shot it on film, and, and maybe it's just a bad quality, but I know enough about TV. I can tell when something's second, third, and fourth generation tape, you know. This just uh -huh. looks like it was shot... You know, with with a couple of guys holding floodlights and a guy, you know, 
with a Bell & Howell 35-millimeter camera, the same one your dad took when you went on vacations. I mean, yeah. it holds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I tried to watch it because I said, hey, maybe I can do this as a whole show. But it's just remarkably unfunny. I sent it to our, our favorite uh, our, our favorite listener, John Kuhn. And I said, hey, you remember this one? And he just types back. He goes, nobody does. And I said, you're exactly Yeah, right. I know. This is a black hole. You found a nugget there. You really yeah. were mining well, the rabbit hole. Well, and that's, that's only yeah. worth a three-minute Google because, trust me, you're going to get three minutes into it. This is just not – there's nothing appealing about the show whatsoever other than the fact that Cleavon Little looks very young. And you're like, oh, look how handsome he w- was when he was really young. you know. But other than that, nothing, nothing, nothing. So I feel bad. I, gave, I, I really laid three steaming turds in the punch bowl with Shields and Yarnell, the Paul Lind Halloween special – and uh, and then of course uh, the new temperatures rising, three steaming turns. Well, I, you're they certainly were, <laughs> but I want to commend you. What did I say earlier? Those who don't realize the mistakes of the past are doomed to repeat them. And you, you you're going to allow if you pass this show on to Hollywood execs and all the major TV networks, maybe just maybe. You've increased the quality of future TV programming by reminding them how bad things can really get. And you know, I, and you and so. I both were big Paul Lind fans on the Hollywood Squares, but it made me realize Paul Lind is one of those guys. He's a lot like Gilbert Gottfried. He's good in very small doses. Very small. As a matter of fact, he is also a one-trick pony in my book. He's got the smart-ass double entendre sure. kind of response. The same thing he did as Uncle Arthur on Bewitched. Yeah, and he was um, great in that. I'm but, not saying, but if he was on every great, week, you'd yeah. be like, oh, geez, here's Uncle Arthur again, you know. Did you know that Paul Lynn and Wally Cox were partners in real life? Um, I had, Well, I knew Wally Cox and Marlon Brando supposedly were. I know Wally Cox was, was gay. Uh, yeah, but I think that him and Paul Lynn actually like, I mean, I don't care. I'm, I'm just saying that it's interesting. I think that they were longtime Partners, but whatever. I, I mean, that's know, neither here nor there. No, no, no. If, if it's true, I'll put it in the corrections. I have heard about, you know, stuff about Wally Cox. And, of course, Paul Lind, you know, it never was out of the closet because you couldn't be out of the closet in the 70s. But uh, but he was very promiscuous from what I've read, which, you know, to each his own, I guess. Uh, it was Hollywood. It was the 70s. Well, I, you know. I, yeah, it was Hollywood. The 70s. I bring it up because I thought I remembered there was a story that um, – I thought it had something to do with his death. There, there, we got to get this is like a Hollywood extra, you know, underground story or something like that. There's some, there's some story about uh, Wally Cox and Paul Lynn and when one of them died and it's like unseemly kind of stuff. Not that they did anything, but whether it was wrapped up in the estates, it was a big mess. Let's put it that way. Well, I, I've I've heard the story I, that when Paul Lynn died, supposedly somebody might have been with him, and that person left and and. Didn't call the police or didn't, you know, alert authorities. Okay, maybe that's what I was hearing, yeah. So, anyway, it's too bad. We don't, we don't need to... No, no, no. You know, you and I don't like to go back and criticize people or anything No, no, like no, that. the private lives, I, I think for the most part, the private lives should stay private. But sometimes, you know, the stories get out there and they get repeated. So, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going go to uh, I'm go to the internet, I'm going to go to my sources, and I will correct all of that in the corrections to make sure we get it goddamn right for a change. <laughs> that's right. I appreciate that because we're all about truth, justice, and the American way. Speak for yourself. Here on the, yeah, <laughs> and bad TV. But yeah. you know what? Um, I feel great 
uh, because I think we've already then, now that we've done Shields and Yarnell, we don't have to dread it coming up in a, per, in, in a future episode. <laughs> it's true. It's like you're, it's, it's, Shields and Yarnell was very much like a dentist appointment. You know, once you get, thanks God I don't have to go through that again. <laughs> we interrupt this broadcast to give you the unfortunate news. The Smothers Brothers, <clears throat> who I find to be very amusing, uh, albeit uh, I'm not much of a wine drinker. I enjoy a cold Budweiser, too. But in any, in any event, yeah. <laughs> two honestly two. compels me to report that their program has been canceled, effective immediately, replaced by the talented duo of Shields and Yarnell. Ooh, la, la. <clears throat> she reminds me a little bit of Marla Collins. <laughs> But listen, <clears throat> I hope you enjoyed the broadcast, if not the outcome. For Jim and Harry, this is Harry Carey, hoping y'all have a happy Halloween. So long now. And this is Jim, and I'm back with the corrections. Cleavon Little died in 1992. Paul Lynn died in 1982 at the age of 55. And originally they thought there might be some... Oh, some seedy circumstances regarding his death. They wrote about it, but it turned out after the investigation, nothing unusual about his death other than the fact he died way too early. Uh, Gary Marshall did play the casino owner in Lost in America. And Pat Paulson, the man who ran for president starting in 1968, and I think he ran every four years after that. He died in 1997. All right, that's it. Quick corrections this time. Uh, thanks again for listening. We'll have another one coming up very soon. Thanks again for listening. So long now.